Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Um, bit of confusion around, Mike. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we're going to start off with the lockdown in the northwest, which has uh, mostly been lifted today, except where it hasn't. Um, so more confusion. And uh, well, Andy Burnham, who is the mayor of Manchester, of course, uh, absolutely disgusted by this. He was on the Radio 4 Today programme this morning. We find ourselves at a completely unsustainable position this morning. Uh, that's the politest way I can put it. Uh, he said uh, overnight we've had restrictions released in two boroughs where we've got a rising number of cases in one case in the red zone. That sounds very, very serious, Brian. Oh. Yes, indeed. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Uh, the only thing that he said that, that, I, that I'll say on one level I agree with was this. Uh, and neighbouring uh, boroughs are still under restrictions, but with much lower numbers of cases. These restrictions were always hard to explain to the public, but they're completely illogical now. And of course, at a certain level, that's absolutely true. So the question is, what's actually going on here? Well, I'm going to suggest... Um, I'm not going to say this as a fact, but I'm going to suggest that what's going on here is behavioural insights at work. Um, so what we're doing is encouraging people to get more and more angry about the uh, illogical nature of the rules. The rules seem illogical because they lift restrictions in one place where there seem to be rising numbers of cases and they keep restrictions in other places where the uh, cases aren't rising. Uh, and of course, this causes angst in people. Uh, and that angst gets expressed just as Andy Burnham is expressing it here uh, and results in demands for consistency. And of course, the, the demands for consistency fall on the lockdown side. Yeah. Um, so this, in my opinion, is uh, and you may have a, a different view, but, uh, but I'm very keen to hear it, Brian, uh, that this is behavioural insights at work as they mess with people's minds psychologically. Well, no, no question of it, Mike. That is the game, which is to confuse the population, to stress the population, because in that state, they are more likely to do what the government wants. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to be talking about uh, Piers Corbyn, who talks about this psychological operation. And I'll just say that over the uh, last couple of weeks break for the UK column, I did get the opportunity to have a chat with a couple of MPs. Um, it was quite an experience because clearly they know nothing. They know nothing about what's going on. They are completely ignorant of what government policy is and how it's being enacted. They don't know about key documents uh, such as the SAGE minutes about ramping up fear. Um, so we've now got an administration, we're going to call it this uh, Westminster of Occupation, uh, which is playing on people's minds, including the MPs and senior people in, in uh, well, mayors and uh, other local officials. Uh, absolutely. So, look, I'm just going to uh, bring these graphics back up from, from Monday's programme. Now, the title of this confused a few people, a couple of people contacted me about this. Uh, this is uh, the latest uh, graphs from Public Health England. The release, the data release is called Weekly Coronavirus Disease 2019 Surveillance Report. And of course, it's not referring to 2019, it's referring to Coronavirus Disease 2019, which is COVID-19. So, you know, this is the latest uh, data that was released on Friday. And of course, this is the graph that, uh, that everybody's basing their uh, illogical decisions on, um, the case graph. And of course, the mainstream press not asking 
any questions about this. I mean, for example, if we put the Daily Mail's version of that on screen, this is what they're focusing on. Everything is about this, the number of infections per day in the UK. And the point we were making on Monday, I just want to make it again, of course, is that actually when you normalize those case numbers uh, per 100,000 in this case, uh, and look at where we're at at the moment, uh, we can see that uh, that graph actually that the mainstream media is pushing out is pretty unrep it's, it's it's not really representative of reality. It's misleading. Totally. Like it's uh, not only is it misleading, it's deliberately misleading. Uh, I believe that's the case. Um, and uh, and of course, then you ask the question: Should we be even using numbers of cases to drive policy at all? Because when we start looking at hospitalizations and admissions to uh, intensive care units we find that those are uh, as near to zero as makes no difference. So, um, you know, this is a, a completely untenable situation that we're in with the decisions being made. But if anybody is in doubt about why decisions appear to be illogical, it's for two reasons. First of all, because it's ba being based on cases. And second of all, because we've got behavioral science at work here, uh, which inevitably results in a policy uh, which appears illogical to the public but is designed to drive a psychological effect? A psychological breakdown. Just as an anecdotal story, like um, uh, last week, I, I got a Chinese takeaway in the evening, so I'm one side of the road. I can't go in that Chinese. I have to queue outside or stand outside. They've got a table across the doorway where you can ask for your order. And the gentleman served me was wearing a mask, so I can't go into the Chinese takeaway. I wasn't wearing a mask. The man serving was wearing a mask, but he also told me he couldn't sell alcohol. That's on the south side of the road. On the north side of the road was a pub where people were in the pub eating and drinking. And um, we've got different rules depending on what side of the road you were on. Right. I pointed this out to one of the ladies queuing behind me. And this strange look came across her face. And then she said, yes, it is ridiculous. Hmm. So people... People can see through it. They just need a bit of help. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, of course, the other story that we mentioned on Monday was the uh, protests in London uh, and the fact that Piers Corbyn had been singled out, in fact, for some special treatment from the police. Uh, he has been running a crowdfunder to fight this on a legal basis. And it's actually doing very, very well at the moment. So he's raised £15,500. I would ask anybody that uh, feels so inclined to help with this because I think it's an important, uh, an important case. Uh, and uh, so he's hoping to reach, uh, what's that, £18,000 by uh, the, two uh, days in another ago. two days. So, yeah. so please contribute to that if you possibly can. Yeah, and it takes a lot of courage to do what uh, Piers is doing. So the more support and uh, um, public support that he gets, the better. Now, we just wanted to highlight, many people actually have commented on this, the interview with uh, Good Morning Britain and Piers Corbyn. And um, can't show you the actual video itself. That, that would be a problem. But uh, let's just have a look at some of that uh, dialogue and how it went. And uh, I'm going to push this across pretty strongly because, uh, of course, we hope that people uh, will give Piers Corbyn that support. Uh, so this is the team. We've got uh, Piers, Mor uh, Piers Morgan. We're going to get going to cause problems, well, isn't it? <laughs> uh, as I'll explain in a minute, the Piers did cause a bit of uh, joviality, but that was soon crushed in this in incident. But we've got Piers Morgan um, and uh, Susanna Reid, who's their centre 
and uh, of course Piers Corbyn on the right. Now I just want to point out that um, the lady we've got on screen, um, and I am going to make an issue of this, is clearly dressed to impress. Um, so this is not about brain power. This is about how much cleavage she can actually put forward. And she's putting forward quite a lot. I'm going to stay on this subject because I don't think this is a joke. I'm not mentioning this as a joke. I'm mentioning it because these are the people we are allowing to basically tell us a pack of lies about what's happening. So we've got fake news. But what was really um, unbelievable in this interview was the sheer ignorance of the Good Morning Britain team and their bullying personal attack on Piers Corbyn. It was quite disgraceful. And I will just give you this clip showing the sort of the sneer of this uh, lady, Susanna Reid, which uh, she produced very early on. You might have to watch it because it happens. Sorry, watch it twice because it happens quite quickly. Uh, she's smirking at uh, Piers Corbyn as they get lined up for this aggressive attack. And what sort of woman is she? Well, you've only got to go to her own Twitter page to see that she's posted this little video clip. So this is nothing about the truth, getting facts out of people. This is all about my image, how I look, who am I? Uh, well, she really looks like this because it took the Daily Mail to say that uh, she had posted a picture of herself. And I'm going to say, wouldn't it be better if Susanna Reid actually got in front of the cameras looking as she really is? Because uh, I think she'd do perfectly well without uh, going through the makeup process. Mm. So let's have a look. Well, the first question from Piers Morgan was uh, straight into the fact that, well, he really broke the law. So this is what he said. Clearly, when you did this rally, you would have known you were breaking the law technically. Did that bother you? And the answer that uh, Piers Corbyn came straight back with was we had a lot of discussions, ongoing discussions with the police and everything was OK. They agreed to enable our rally to end in a march to Downing Street. We're a political rally and those are allowed. However, at the last minute, a different group of policemen turned up and arrested me. And when I was in the van, I asked them what was going on and they indicated that, quote, this came from on high. So in that answer back, Piers Corbyn said there was something strange going on because I'd worked with the police and they told me that what we were doing was OK. But somebody on high put their oar in. He said, so as far as we can see, it was a political decision to arrest me and to allow the Black Lives Matter event just down the road to happen. That was a pretty powerful response. And to his credit, Piers Morgan did pick up on this. He said, it's an interesting point. I'm not sure why you're being singled out for a £10,000 fine when clearly there have been a lot of other mass protests. What was the, uh, what was the reason given to you um, that you have been targeted when so many others, as you said, BLM protests have taken place without anyone being fined? And uh, Piers Corbyn came back. He said they do not give a reason. And you, Piers, uh, should challenge Sadiq Khan why he's got political policing in London. And if it's not political to allow us to have another rally on the 26th of September. Now, I think this is a very, very important exchange here because we're now talking about political policing. Mm. This has occurred north of the border in Scotland where Nippy was giving agreement to Black Lives Matter marches. But here we're seeing if the government doesn't agree with your march, you get a different form of policing. Perhaps we could bring Alex in just to comment on the 
the impact on the law. We're into very, very dangerous territory now, uh, Alex, where the law seems to be made up on the hoof, depending on what the uh, political viewpoint is. Yes, Brian, we've got several levels of problem and corruption here. Uh, it's particularly acute in a common law jurisdiction like England, because uh, so much has been done on the basis of assuming the honour and goodwill of officers of the law in the past. Uh, once again, I am struck by the coordinated nature of this change in policing, because uh, it's just over the last weekend with the events in Berlin, in Dublin, in London and various parts of the United States, to name just four. I think there are many other countries and jurisdictions we could name. In all of these cases, I have seen, uh, in some cases, video, but certainly well-described testimony by the organisers. I'm thinking of John Waters and Gemma O'Doherty in Dublin. I'm thinking of uh, some of the people who've been live, live streaming from the Tiergarten in Berlin uh, on Saturday and Sunday. In all of these cases, they dealt with usual policing channels to book their demonstration, were told everything was fine, and within the dying embers, uh, this always seems to be around 4 or 5 p.m. at these events, there seems to be a modus operandi to do that. When the event is already peacefully dispersing, as discussed, a new group of policemen come along and, depending on the jurisdiction, lift them. Of course, Germany has savage policing, so you just get bent double straight away. Um, in the case of the Dublin protest, it was a new bunch of Gardaí coming along uh, saying, take that banner down. Uh, in contravention of previous, uh, this was a banner over a, a motorway bridge on the M11 that can be seen from RTE headquarters, the Irish public broadcaster. Uh, there seems to be a coordinated attempt now to uh, send new teams of police officers in, often younger, uh, more drilled and taking orders from some kind of mid-level officer that was not the same officer that was dealt with at first. And I do have to observe while we're on this, it, people may find it distasteful, but this coordinated level of one policing team uh, countermanding another is something we've seen very often before in England and in Scotland when people have credible reports of elite child abuse. Yes. Um, fascism. I'll just say it's fact what we are seeing built, what is emerging from the shadows is essentially a fascist state under the uh, Conservatives. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think I would, because you know the, the word fascism is, is much contested. David Scott often says, he did so again on Monday, that it's very much open to question what fascism is. Uh, do we call it far right, far left, or do we just simply call it the, uh, the outer point of a horseshoe? Um, what characterises fascism is subject to endless debate, uh, but at the very basic level, it's not the mid-20th century idea uh, of telling people what to do through state structures. It's more hand in glove than that. It is essentially, and this is what the Conservative Party in Britain excel at, uh, is the appearance of still having liberties. Uh, but if people wish to uh, broadcast them themselves with the wrong opinions, uh, for example, or go out on the streets with unfashionable views, then the apparatus will make it extremely uncomfortable for them. And disingenuous secondary or tertiary uh, charges will be stuck at people. Uh, because it's, you know, it's still not at the stage in Britain that you can come out as you could do in some continental jurisdictions and say, we don't like these kinds of views. It has to be done uh, behind, through backdoor routes, such as you're frightening the horses, uh, what you're saying is, is untoward. So yes, that, that is a kind of fascism, but it's just, it's one iteration removed from full statism. It is really that the state controls the, the, um, 
broadcasting channels and the policing far more than it appears to. And of course, we can see this brutal style of policing emerging in, in other countries. Australia is one we're going to mention in, in a moment. Let's come back to the Piers and Piers interview. Um, so Piers Morgan uh, responded that on the subject of the dual standards of the police uh, with regard to Piers Corbyn. He said on that point, it seems irrational and unfair and, quote, we will ask Sadiq Khan. Now, I think this is something for our viewers to pick up on because um, GMB have said they will tackle Sadiq Khan on what was going on with the policing here. And I think Piers Morgan should be held, held to account. But on he went, what were you protesting about? He said to Piers Corbyn, uh, do you believe the coronavirus pandemic is real? And this was Piers Corbyn reply. There are various views on this. Some doctors are saying what we're seeing is some sort of flu that's been around for 46 years. And others say it doesn't exist at all. It's a virus and everything that is happening is exaggerated. Uh, what we're doing is challenging the government to give actual evidence that there is a virus to show under standard tests that there is a virus. Now, I think this is a very powerful reply because, of course, the onus is going straight back on the government to prove what it's doing is correct. So there was nothing uh, wrong with this reply from peers at all. But um, this takes the biscuit because back comes the lovely Susanna, um, who was getting very emotional. She said this, hang on a minute, the Prime Minister himself was hospitalised with the virus. How much more evidence do you need? So we are to see on screen that the Prime Minister has gone in hospital. We are told that he is suffering from uh, coronavirus or COVID. And we are to believe that, according to this lady. Mm. And I think that this question shows the limit of her brain power because she's now believing her own propaganda or the propaganda that's coming out. So he uh, Piers responds. He says, it, well, he was hospitalised with the virus. Sorry. Well, was he hospitalised with the virus or was he ill from something else? There have been a lot of claims going on and there might have been something happening in the past which is not happening now. And the debate is is getting pretty unpleasant already at this stage. You are suggesting the British Prime Minister invented having a virus that may not exist. This is where you started to see really the nasty undertone of Piers Morgan as well. And uh, Piers Corbyn held it together pretty well. He said, I don't know if anyone invented it or not, but I would say that the numbers of people getting whatever they are getting is declining rapidly. And there is no justification whatsoever for continuing lockdown. And you've just shown those figures yourself, Mike. So in came Piers Corbyn. Let me jump in. 25 million people around the world have tested positive for coronavirus, COVID-19, and over 800,000 people have died from COVID-19. That is a demonstrable fact. Is it? What part of that do you think does not constitute a pandemic? Well, we're going to show that what Piers Morgan is saying is utter nonsense here, but we'll stick with the, with the reply from Piers Corbyn. Well, 800,000 people have died and that's been labelled COVID when it might have been completely something else. It is not a pandemic because the numbers dying are nothing different from a normal year of dying as they die all the time. And it's not a consequence. And sorry, it's not a high consequence infectious disease. Uh, and that was declared by the government, the World Health Organization on March the 19th. 
And he goes on to say, what we have is a psychological operation to close down the economy in the interests of mega corporations who are going to gain out of massive joblessness happening upon us now. And back she comes because now she's getting very excited indeed. More than 40,000 people have died in this country as a result of COVID directly. What an insult to their families to say that this is some sort of fiction and blame it on the pharmaceutical companies. And I'm going to say we're going to label that fake news because none of the statistics show that 40,000 people have died of COVID alone. And uh, we've got confirmation of the latest uh, statistics uh, just to do with deaths for COVID. And for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here, which is one of the best sources, it's saying that that figure is now just 6% of the deaths. So if we look at that against the United States, which is the primary statistics, they're saying that 6% of 856,180 is 51,371 total deaths for COVID-19 in the States. And then they go on to say this is not a pandemic and therefore all the associated regulations and pandemic should be null and void. Sorry, that was comment by the person who obtained those statistics. It's not a pandemic and therefore all the associated regulations regarding a pandemic should be null and void. And if we use that 6% figure uh, against the UK um, figures, we find that a mere 2,490 people have died from COVID alone to date. And before we came away, the figure was about 1,800, 1,900. The official figure was yes. about 1,800, yeah. 1,900. But of course, we've got to remember that uh, the British government has already had to walk back from the statistics for people that they were attributing as having died from COVID-19. They reduced, they slashed 5,000 people off that number uh, just before we broke up for the summer holiday. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, there are still very big questions to be asked about whether that was an appropriate number or whether it was vastly uh, underestimated once again. Yes. So there we are. Um, good morning, Britain, using every trick, uh, bullying, personal attacks, uh, skewing or downright lies with what the actual statistics are in order to get an opinion across, which essentially backed uh, what we're describing as a fascist government at work. So. Watch the video yourself. You should watch that interview yourself, see it all. But if you disagree with it, then you should be on the phones uh, to Good Morning Britain to challenge them. And we just end by the fact that uh, in the comments underneath, although many of them were very derogatory of Piers Corbyn, um, the, there were some other comments. But here's Susanna Reid's Twitter page. And she says in her own words at the top that she's a liberal snowflake TV clothes horse. So that's her words at the top of her Twitter page. I think she's a narcissist. I think this lady is very dangerous in being part of a propaganda machine. And uh, luckily, one or two people really picked up. Wow, just watch the interview, all of you bullies. If you were my mother or you were my daughter, I'd be ashamed of you. Disgusting and vile behavior, soldier soul. And uh, this one, ignorance and disgusting rudeness by all the uh, Good Morning Britain team this morning, but no surprise there, of course. And after turning it off, I won't be watching that programme again. 
no wonder he can't get any politicians to appear. So a snapshot analysis there, Mike, of uh, uh, some of Britain's worst propaganda. But until people start to see through this stuff, they're not going to get to the bones of the great lie over this so-called pandemic. Absolutely. So the question is, where does it where does it end up? And uh, I was speaking to Ian Crane yesterday. He's got contacts in Australia, as, as everybody knows. And uh, well, of course, in Australia, Victoria is the main area where the real draconian uh, uh, response is taking place. And so many people talking about uh, this this morning. Daily Mail covered it as well. Uh, Zoe Lee, the Zoe Lee arrest in Victoria. Uh, she had created a Facebook event uh, to organise a protest in Ballarat, Victoria. Uh, and so the police uh, invaded her home. Uh, she live streamed it. Uh, they presented a search warrant. They took computers and so on. Uh, and uh, so she was handcuffed in, in her lounge in front of her uh, children. Uh, and was uh, accused of offences uh, with respect to encouraging gatherings. So you're not allowed to encourage uh, a gathering, Brian. And, uh, uh, well, actually, if anybody hasn't seen uh, this guy, this is uh, uh, Sky News described as a pundit, Alan Jones, in Australia. He's been producing some monologues uh, on the whole coronavirus response uh, in Australia, and mostly they have been extremely good. Uh, he's absolutely enraged by what happened to Zoe Lee. He said, thankfully, I'm not the only Australian who thinks this is appalling, disgusting and disgraceful. Uh, the only person guilty of incitement is the Premier of Victoria. His outlandish grab for power, his disdain for any accountability is forcing people to, uh, to behave simply. Uh, Sorry, there's a misprint in that. Behaviour simply designed to take back their freedom. So, uh, you know, strong comments from at least one mainstream uh, media personality in Australia over what's going on in Victoria. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ian, when I was speaking to Ian Crane yesterday, he was expressing what he had been told from people there, the, the massive concern over the level uh, of crackdown in, in that state. Well, um, the media people must realise at some point that this process is going to affect them. They're not going to uh, they're not going to be immune to this sort of policing. Alex, come back to you on it. Uh, I'm amazed at how naive um, reporters are within the so so-called mainstream because they seem to think this thing can build itself and they're going to carry on life as normal. Well, without pulling any elitist card, Brian, I would say it helps if you're a Cambridge graduate, because if you go back for dinners at your alma mater, you talk, you get hobnobbing to people who used to be your drinking chums age 20, so they're quite frank with you, and now they're writing for a broadsheet. And you have an impression because of their student background or whatever, their education and their, their output, that they're serious. And then over a glass of wine, what they'll admit to you is it's all about pushing narratives and agendas. And then the, the, the swearing comes out, the completely prejudicial language about the 95% of the country that don't think like them uh, rolls off the tongue. So, yes, it, it was it was known to people in some circles, I think, uh, how unconcerned with the truth journalism was. Um, just regarding Victoria, they have spent, as has Ireland, about 15 years preparing for this tyranny by having common purpose style and in some cases common purpose people injected uh, into their state apparatus in Melbourne, uh, particularly a um, British organisation called FutureGov, which was very much a common purpose spin-off from the London boroughs. 
uh, went out there and colonized Melbourne as its foothold in Australia. And also they went down the sexual liberation path at the same time as Ireland did. So around 2003, I think it was, Victoria made a signal move to legalize brothels. These things are not by chance because the view that rulers have of the human body is very much like Aldous Huxley, you know, tyrannous control of the body. But on the other hand, let the plebs um, get up to their jollies without restriction in order to keep their mind off serious things. Uh, just to regard that 6% number as well, if people want an unpacking of those CDC statistics, I recommend a video that they'll easily find on YouTube by searching when is coronavirus not coronavirus, and they will find John Cullen, that's spelt with an E-N, John Cullen speaking to Jason Goodman yesterday. Uh, you can start that video from around 11.45, that's where the meet starts, or if you're short of time, go to 40 minutes, and you will find lots of unpacking of how the CDC has deliberately withheld from its uh, download patches uh, the crucial statistics from their weekly uploads. This may be going on with some of the politicized statistics uh, across the Western world. We know that uh, British and Irish statistical bodies are producing more honest data than the medical equivalents. Mm. So uh, even where there are downloadable statistics for people to play with, I think it should be worldwide now. Look very carefully at what is on the website updates, not just what's available for a downloaded zip file. Uh, some of the crucial data is being left out, and John Cullen explains very well uh, how this uh, pointed him towards what he calls the double hump, and comparisons with the Spanish influenza outbreak of uh, 1918 are very revealing how, the, um, how the, the, uh, the spin of the numbers is actually being perpetrated. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, well, over the uh, holiday break, uh, a gentleman said to me, it would be great to have some uh, uplifting news amongst the accurate reporting that the UK column does. I was going to save these emails to the end because I think these are very good news. We are seeing more and more people starting to act themselves, challenging the establishment as to what's going on. And just keep the flavour. Uh, we've had Australia, we better bring in New Zealand here, otherwise we'll be in trouble. Um, this is a really excellent email, which has come to us from New Zealand. The person says, I've sent to Ministry of Health, waiting for their response, but also wrote to Auckland Transport, the government department that runs the city's transport. Here is their reply. Thank you for getting in touch with Auckland Transport. During alert level two, our public transport services are operating at a capacity limit. This means that even though passengers are on board, they're not forced to be in a confined space with one another. As an example of this is that buses are only allowing around 15 passengers on board at a time. Because of this, a risk assessment on face mask usage in confined space has not been conducted and is not deemed necessary. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to get in touch. Now, the person who'd initiated this question was, of course, delighted because they'd got the evidence that no risk assessment had been carried out. So uh, the email went on, although I think they assumed I was worried about catching the virus, I'm not. They've answered the question, no risk assessment. Well, I'm geared up now to take this to the next level. I'm reporting them to WorkSafe, the New Zealand equivalent of health and safety executive. I just wanted to share this with you because you and your team are doing a brilliant job of making a difference in this unjust world we live in. Thank you and best wishes, L. So a great boost uh, for us in the column, but this is exactly what's needed, which is millions of people standing up to be counted and challenging the system. 
and using their own evidence back against them. So we're going to say well done to the NZ team. Uh, now, uh, unemployment. Uh, well, what have we got in the ages 16 to 24 in that age group range? I think we've got something like 550,000 unemployed young people at this point in time. Uh, but we don't need to worry because the government is riding to the rescue with the kickstart scheme. Uh, there we go. So what's this all about then? Well, uh, on the 8th of July, the Chancellor announced the uh, kickstart scheme as part of the plan for jobs. Plan for jobs is £2 billion. Pounds, uh, and uh, it's apparently going to create all kinds of new jobs. So it's going to create hundreds of thousands of new fully subsidised jobs for young people across the country. Uh, so these are six-month places. I don't know where these people are going to get placements because there's no companies hiring and no companies doing, at least relatively few, doing any actual work still. Uh, and uh, so it's open to those aged between 16 and 24 who are claiming universal credit and at risk of long-term employment. Uh, and it'll be avail available across a range of different sectors in England, Scotland and Wales. And the first placements are likely to start from November. Now, here's the key thing, Brian. Funding is available for 100% of the relevant national minimum wage for 25 hours a week, plus associated employer national insurance contributions and employer minimum automatic enrolment contributions. And there's also £1,500 per job placement available for setup costs, support and training. So that all sounds very good. But then we get to the kicker. Funding is available following a successful application process. Applications must be for a minimum of 30 job placements. If you're unable to offer this many job placements, you can partner with other organisations to reach the minimum number. So it already becomes a massive administrative burden on small businesses in particular. Now, it's small businesses in particular that are suffering most here, and it's the small businesses in particular that need to support. And I would imagine that small businesses in particular would really appreciate being able to take advantage of a scheme like this, but they're already ruled out of it because not many small businesses require 30 uh, interns effectively uh, for six months at this point in time. Um, and so now they, they automatically have to go through a process of trying to find 29 other small businesses that want to do the same thing. So this is basically set up to fail, as far as I can see, in terms of being really productive, other than getting people, well, where are, they, where are young people going to end up in, in what, call centres or something like this? Well, and, and they're going to end up in the big society network. They're going to be working for some of the trusts and charities and other organisations that are there, but they're not proper jobs. That's what they're going to do with them, I think. I'll just say you're now on to the subject that Piers Corbyn said quite rightly, a psychological attack whilst the big companies hoover up uh, what remains of the uh, companies put out of business as a result of this deliberate lockdown. Yes. Um, now, let's bring uh, Mark Sedwell back onto the screen, probably for one of the last times, if not the last time, because he is uh, leaving his job within the next two or three days. He was, of course, National Security Advisor, head of the National Security Council, and therefore in charge of all the uh, intelligence services, also head of the UK Civil Service, uh, and also head of the Cabinet Office, and therefore responsible for a lot of the uh, censorship and uh, uh, regime that's going on at the moment. Now, uh, back at the end of uh, July, I think it was, we highlighted that David Frost had been appointed to replace him as National Security Advisor. So David Frost, who's currently running the Brexit negotiations, we'll be talking a little bit more about those in a second, uh, becomes uh, head of the National Security Council and then over, uh, providing oversight of the uh, 
various intelligence agencies. Um, well, we'll be glad to know that we now know who is the head of the UK Civil Service and the Cabinet Office. Uh, it's this man, Simon Case. Um, so the Prime Minister has appointed Simon Case as the Cabinet Secretary and head of the Civil Service. Uh, he's currently the Permanent Secretary in number 10. He will succeed Mark Sedwell uh, in a day or two's time. Uh, and, uh, well, if we just briefly run through his CV, it's quite interesting. He was uh, Trinity College, Cambridge. He studied history. He then went on to do a PhD in political history at Queen Mary University, London. Uh, his thesis was the Joint Intelligence Committee and German Question, 1947 to 61. He was looking at uh, how uh, the assessment from that, from the Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, informed, informed government policy during the Cold War. Uh, in 2006, he joined the civil service as a policy advisor at the Ministry of Defence. And then he held roles in the Cabinet Office, the Northern Ireland Office, GCHQ, uh, and on the Olympic Secretariat, which was involved in uh, the 2012 Olympic Games in London. Uh, and then he became private secretary to the Prime Minister, David Cameron, in 2012. Uh, he then went back to the Cabinet Office uh, Implementation Group. Then he went back to number 10, where he worked as a principal private secretary to the Prime Minister. Uh, he was then involved in the Brexit talks uh, and uh, left in 2018 to become Prince William's private secretary. Uh, and then he returned uh, earlier this year back into number 10, this time to help with the coronavirus response. Um, so here's what Boris Johnson had to say about it. Uh, he said, Simon's years of experience at the heart of government and working for the royal household make him ideally suited for this crucial role. And so my first question is, why does working for the royal household make him ideally suited for the crucial role? Might come back to that in a second. Um, and uh, well, what did he have to say? Uh, he said, I'm grateful to Mark Sedwell for the kindness and support he has given me in my career and I wish him well for this for his next chapter. Uh, and Alex, um, if I could get some thoughts from you on this guy and what he is, because it's not entirely clear, because my understanding is that, yes, he w did work uh, with Ollie Robbins in the Brexit um, team, which, of course, was a discredited Brexit team, which was uh, Theresa May's Brexit team, which is effectively keeping us in the Europe fully in the European Union. Uh, but he left in 2018. Actually, he was kicked out because uh, he didn't uh, agree with what Ollie Robbins and that team was doing. So I'm not clear where this guy sits in the. In, is he is he is he with Brexit or is or what is he? And uh, what do you know of him as an ex GCHQ man? To start with the last point, I think it's quite telling that I know precisely nothing about him. I left GCHQ in 2009 the same year that uh, Mr. Case was finishing his PhD, uh, I, I, like you, I zoomed in on it, and uh, the precy of it that's on the Queen Mary website ends the, uh, the summary by saying that the Joint Intelligence Committee, or JIC, ensured, this is in the, the, the era when the Soviet Union was being presented as the existential threat, which of course it was, but a certain angle was taken in Whitehall, obviously, and in Washington. The JIC ensured that it became an essential tool for successive governments. Yeah? So he's investigating how, and this is before he got uh, posted to GCHQ and before he was Cameron's um, uh, political private secretary, how the mechanisms of the cabinet office made themselves indispensable in presenting or being the filter to perceive threats coming from Russia, right? So that model was being set up then. Case got an expert in that before he was parachuted in. It is unusual, or it was before the all change of 2010, it was unusual 
for people who had no GCHQ interior uh, experience to be parachuted into the board, and he became DS, Director Strategy, which frankly is not one of the heavy-hitting directorate roles, it's one of the second-tier ones, but he was put in there to politicise GCHQ, I would say. And to answer the first question you raised, Mike, what kind of Brexit does he advocate? Well, the man's own words make it perfectly clear that he is um, a said will stooge, uh, uh, Sir Mark Lackey. Uh, thank you for patronage, is what he said in his own terms. Uh, the royal household reference, by the way, is probably due to the fact that the cabinet office people, particularly in the intelligence underbelly of it, are often double-hatted to have royal household roles. So that's not very well advertised, of course, but that's probably what was going on. So it indicates he was pretty senior, even within the cabinet office uh, secret apparatus. So what kind of Brexit? Well, if he's a Sedwellite, and then, um, and the, the Times has reported this today that he fell out with Robbins because he had he was better plugged into Brussels than Ollie Robbins was, and and even Theresa May's uh, team couldn't stand that. He was even more pro Brussels than them. Well, let's nuance that. I think what they fell out about is this: the Ollie Robbins team were just um, lifting and copying and pasting the Brussels edicts in the same way as uh, uh, the. Um, uh, Angus Lapsley Brigade have been doing in, in military union work, as David Ellis has pointed out. Um, but I would suggest that Case took the Sedwellite line, which has always been, let us unite the continent in order to be top dog through our dark arts, our soft um, skills, our soft power and our influence. Um, which, by the way, if we go into extra time, I'll point out much the same with regard to Millie Weaver's extremely important documentary on Shadownet. There's probably too much to say about that in the main news, but I do want to cover that thoroughly because it's the same coterie saying, let us get in between the facts and government, whether it's COVID or the Russian threat or whatever it may be, and present it in a certain way. I don't think Robbins was up to that intellectually. I don't think he was enough of a Machiavellian. So probably that's what they fell out over, is that he realised that Case actually had a bigger agenda and a, and a bigger patrone than, than Robbins himself had. Ergo, of course, said was more important than Theresa May, but I think we knew that anyway. Uh, yes, but I mean, one of the things that we've been highlighting over the last couple of years has been uh, the, the, the situation of, of uh, having this uh, level of, of power in the hands of one person, Mark Sedwell. Um, how do you think that's going to play out over the next uh, period of time if we've got somebody who's rapidly pro-Europe, uh, head of the civil service and in the cabinet office, and somebody who is apparently at least rapidly anti-Europe, uh, as uh, uh, national security advisor, it, this these we we had a bad situation with Settle with, with him holding all those roles. But but if you have people that are uh, taking conflict. such disparate uh, positions, uh, there's there's going to be conflict there, right? Well, this kind of dysfunctionality is routine in the Foreign Office and the MOD. Certainly, I saw it in my decade in service. And, you know, FCO teams and MOD teams would take me aside, not just me, but anyone who was from a third agency, and swear in my presence about the other people. So all this briefing against the other team is, is quite well known. Uh, the question is, who trumps? And uh, in every case, those who are at the heart of the Cabinet Office Trump, because they've got the reserve powers of the Crown under so-called royal prerogative, and uh, they've got more levers to pull. And ultimately, as uh, Simon Case said in his PhD before he entered this murky world, uh, he made his study and he, made, he drew the correct conclusions that he who controls the intelligence assessment controls the politicians. So I think the knives are out for Sir David Frost, and I think he realises that. Uh, I do hope he has some allies. Okay, well, let's uh, move on then. If you like what the column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there, and that would be very much appreciated. 
Okay, and we're just another thanks to uh, viewers and listeners um, because you're doing things. This is brilliant. Um, email to UK column on the subject of returning to school. It says, according to Public Health England's returning to primary schools document, children can have COVID but be asymptomatic, but if they need to take time off school because they're displaying symptoms, testing and isolation is recommended. My son is desperate to return to school since he's grown increasingly upset over time at having missed his fellow classmates so much. I will be sending him back, but will refuse any testing. Ipsus Mori, with its unfortunate Latin translation of they die, I hear of the company involved with testing, two companies involved with data collection that merged into a another ugly Goliath. The only faith I have in the school is his head teacher who will not be temperature checking children upon entry or setting up thermal imaging cameras, as will be the case in my daughter's secondary school, and has stipulated that children are not permitted to wear masks in school since we feel it will be detrimental to their well-being. Thanks for your great work. Much gratitude. So good to see parents sticking up for their children. And this is just a very short email and I think it's a good one. There's a whole uh, chain of emails that have prompted this one, but it's an email sent to the Right Honourable Peter Dowd MP. I'm not sure what we do not agree on. My question is simply, do you and your party support the government implementation for children to be wearing masks in school and social distancing measures? Question mark. This only requires a yes or no answer. So a very... Um, short to the point uh, email, but the sort of email that MPs don't like because there's nothing to uh, try and hide amongst. It's very clear and direct. Mm. Uh, now, last, uh, last July, we highlighted uh, the government's consultation on uh, confirming online identity. They're very concerned about the number of people uh, needing to access government services and all kinds of other services from all kinds of other co companies that uh, have to prove and they have to prove their identity in order to access those services. So, for example, 2.6 million people made a claim for the self-employment income support scheme online since uh, it launched on the 13th of May, uh, with 1.4 million having no prior digital identity credentials uh, and needing to pass through the UK tax authorities uh, identity verification scheme. Um, so that's what they're saying. Um, so they are going to implement a new digital identity strategy board uh, focusing on six principles and they're also going to run a uh, pilot scheme and it's going to be run through the Department for Digital Culture and Media on Sport uh, and Sport. So the, uh, they're also exploring how secure checks could be made against government data. Uh, so the uh, the, the document checking service pilot scheme is being launched this month. We'll come on to that in a second, uh, which allows uh, the government to give people easier and safer access to digital services which require identity checks, so long as online mortgage applications, financial services and recruitment onboarding. So if you're applying for a mortgage, Brian, if you want uh, to get a job, uh, then, of course, part of the vetting process for a mortgage or a job will involve uh, identity checks and uh, record checks at government level. So we're seeing the, the merging, the, uh, the merging of, of corporate and, and government yeah. data in order to decide whether you're uh, whether you're a valid person for a for a mortgage or whether you deserve to have a job. So let's just uh, briefly have a look at the uh, the six. Um, the six uh, uh, criteria here, privacy, when personal data is accessed, people will have confidence that there are measures in place to ensure their confidentiality and privacy. For instance, a supermarket checking a shopper's age, a lawyer overseeing the sale of a house, 
uh, or someone applying to take out a loan. So the, in those cases, uh, just going into a supermarket and buying a packet, uh, you know, a, a carton of beer is going to result in a check against the government database. This is spectacular. Transparency, uh, when the individual's identity data is assessed, uh, when using digital uh, identity products, they must be able to stand, understand by whom, uh, why and when. For example, being able to see how your bank uses your data through digital identity solutions. Uh, inclusivity, people who want or need digital identity should be able to obtain one. For example, not having documentation such as a passport or driving license should not be a barrier to having a digital identity. Uh, interoperability, uh, setting technical and operating standards to use across UK's economy to enable international and domestic interoperability. So this will stretch not just, won't, won't be restricted to national borders in any way. Uh, proportionality, the user needs, uh, sorry, user needs and other considerations such as privacy and security will be balanced so that digital identity can be used with confidence across the economy. And finally, good governance, digital identity standards will be linked to government policy and law. Any future regulation will be clear, coherent and aligned with the government's wider strategic approach to digital regulation. For example, for example, firms verifying your identity will need to comply with laws around how they access and store data. Uh, but don't worry, don't worry, because there are, there are things in place. So no organisation will be given access to government-held data. Participating organisations will simply receive a yes, no or error message as to whether the document was validly issued and no personal data not already provided by the uh, individual would be used and shared. So you don't need to worry about this massive increase in the level of surveillance um, and, uh, and it will never be abused. Um, well, I think it's designed to be abused, Mike. And, and of course, the other thing we've got is the government is continually working in partnership with companies. And I will say that what I think is going to happen, of course, is where they're working in partnership, uh, those companies will have direct access to the data. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, uh, thoughts? Yeah, I think this is just uh, the British uh, presentational wrapping for the agenda which has become known as global citizenship and if i'm not mistaken there's still a blogspot site up called globalcitizen.blogspot.com uh, or similar url which goes into detail on this how id 2020 was being pushed by the gateses of this world before covid came along and by some people's assessments uh, one of the top three aims of the covid crisis has been to push through ID 2020. Uh, we've just covered that Ireland has got its health passports. You have to have subterfuge more in the common law jurisdictions and a couple of other civil law ones like Finland, because those countries, common law plus the likes of Finland, on principle do not have population registers, whereas countries in, like the Netherlands here or most continental countries can seamlessly behind the scenes roll their population registers into a global digital model. I think the giveaway there, the tell-all is what you pointed out, Mike, that uh, irregulars or undocumented people or refuseniks who don't have passports and birth certificates will be included because it will be straight from biometric to world level digital. In other words, passports and borders are just going to be for show from now on, uh, even when we get to the question of lockdowns, a national lockdown, a regional lockdown, from the point of view of um, those controlling the global uh, digital flow, the, the digital citizenship, it's all much of a muchness. It's just a question of which front authorities you're using. Uh, yeah, just very briefly, Alex, lots and lots of people, of course, criticizing China for its regime. But frankly, the West is well out in front here. 
Yes, because uh, you know the, the level of collusion between public and private authorities, if anything, is worse uh, in countries that follow, for example, the Scottish model of government since 2007, which is being actively exported, uh, mostly to Western countries, of course, but also to China. It's worse than it would be in China itself, where there is residual, whether it's inefficiency or, or, or suspicion, which prevents a lot of um, private enterprises to the extent that they exist in China from willingly sharing. I think it's only in the West that idealists, often conscientious Christian types who think they're doing a world of good, will go out of their way to share information about their pupils, their patients, their wards, their, their social services clients, uh, in order to feed the beast with more information. I don't think that happens outside the West to any great extent. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, of course, while all this is going on, in the meantime, we continue with our narratives, our anti-Russian and anti-Chinese narratives with a view to conflict uh, and uh, continued pressure on the borders with Russia here. Um, so here's the United States Army uh, Artillery Brigade uh, stationed in Germany. They're conducting a live fire training exercise called Railgunner Rush uh, and it's taking place in Estonia and it's taking place 70 miles from the Russian border. Uh, Railgunner Rush will demonstrate the strong bilateral partnership between the US and Estonia and test the brigade's deployment capabilities, readiness and interoperability with NATO allies, according to a US Army statement. Uh, and the routine training exercise is not tied to any current events in the region, apparently, so that should uh, keep us uh, feeling safe. Uh, but in a sense, it is, uh, it is linked to events in the region. Uh, and I'm sure the Russians are shaking in their beds, uh, Brian, as these guys get, get off the, uh, the, the aircraft here with their face masks on. And I wonder how they're going to perform during this live fire exercise while they're suffering from hypoxia. Who, who knows? Who knows? For, for, but, those, but, for those listening and not watching, uh, they're all getting off the, 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 the transport aircraft with wearing face masks. So it's fantastic. You're now uh, uh, effectively training for war in face masks. Fantastic stuff. Uh, the Russians, for their part, did call it provocative and dangerous. And this was their statement from the Russian embassy. Uh, why, this uh, why this demonstrative saber rattling? What signal do NATO members want to send us? Who is actually fueling tensions in Europe? Uh, and all this is taking place in the context of an aggravated political situation in that region of the European continent. Rhetorical question, how would the Americans react if such a shooting were carried out, if such shooting were carried out by our military near the US borders? I think that's a fair point, isn't it? Well, it's a very fair point. And I think we know the answer, which would be outrage. Uh, Complete outrage. Uh, absolutely. And in the meantime, then, we've got more because NATO claiming that Russian fighter jets violated NATO airspace over Bornholm Island. Uh, this was uh, over, this, this was a, a, an Su-27 fighter um, basically buzzing uh, a large U.S. bomber. Uh, and uh, apparently they got pretty close and the U.S. bomber crew was pretty upset by the whole thing. But nonetheless, uh, the rhetoric that came out from NATO uh, as a result of that still continuing to push this, this idea that uh, it's the Russians which are uh, really, you know, being aggressive here, when in fact it's uh, the West which is pursuing the aggression as far as I can see. And as for the Chinese, they also are making comments uh, recently. This is uh, uh, Wang Yi, who's the Russian uh, foreign minister. He was speaking at the French Institute of International Relations. Uh, saying that basically the U.S.-China relationship uh, is at its most testing time since the establishment of diplomatic relations, and uh, they also expressing uh, concerns or 
or wondering who is actually driving uh, the, the policy. And, and uh, Alex, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on who's driving this policy quite so hard. Well, again, perhaps another uh, hint of what we'll be seeing in extra time, um, because I think the Atlantic Council is ultimately the body you should be looking at. And that's a body over which we have so many question marks now, um, but they are effectively NATO's think tank. So, it, you know, at below the secretary general level and the political, you know, the North Atlantic Council level of, of heads of state and, and ministers, uh, it's the question of the Atlantic Council where, where the strategic vector of NATO is, is resolved. And that's where the partnership for peace exercises for the, the, the areas around Russia and also um, the exercises involving actual NATO member states now, like the Baltic Three, uh, those are cleared at that level. The Atlantic Council is, you know, it presents itself as a think tank. It's, it's rather more than that. I think that they, more than the, uh, the Pentagon, are deciding U.S. troops' involvement in such matters. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, we're vastly out of time, but I just do want to, to cover these uh, quickly. Uh, first of all, uh, Brexit. Now, of course, uh, many people still don't really understand what Brexit was about, uh, because apparently we've already left. Well, of course, we've gone through the divorce. Um, that was getting us out of the previous uh, treaties, which included, of course, a veto. Uh, that gets us out of all that. We've now got a future relationship, which is under negotiation at the moment. Uh, and the main focus seems to be at the, this current point in the uh, negotiation seems to be over fishing. Um, and uh, so we had this from the uh, Daily Express today. Brexit fisheries row, naval battle warning as EU braces for life without UK waters. Now, before I get you to comment on this, Brian, because uh, I would imagine you're laughing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the first question that came to my mind was, really? Uh, well, first of all, France takes, I believe, about 90 percent or maybe something around 90 percent of the cod from the English Channel at the moment. Uh, but the problem is we don't have a navy. And actually, we're in a 50-year defence pact with the French through the Lancaster House and Sandhurst Treaties. So even if we had a navy which could take any kind of action, how do we do it diplomatically? Well, of course, you can't. If you're going to take action, you're going to take action, and it's going to get pretty, uh, pretty messy. But just a comment on the navy. Uh, of course, we do have still have fishery protection ships, so there are some offshore patrol vessels, fishery protection vessels that could do the job, whereas we don't really have an effective uh, remains of the Navy. Um, but we've heard all this stuff before. It's, um, it's rhetoric, it's trying to ramp up fear in the population, it's complete and utter nonsense. Um, I actually, one of the factors that encouraged me to leave the Navy was that as captain of one of the fishery protection vessels, um, I watched as we destroyed our own fishing industry. And uh, it was very clear to me what was going on. I decided I wasn't going to be part of that. And it's, it's one of the things that influenced my decision to leave. So um, the portrayal of Britain's fishing industry has gone on over many years, nothing to do with the EU. It was betrayal by British politicians. And uh, this is just stuff and nonsense. Uh, absolutely. So, in fact, I'm going to call it fake news. But one thing which isn't fake news is Anne Whittacombe's uh, uh, opinion piece, also in the Express. There is no defence for Boris's evasion to important questions, says Anne Whittacombe. Uh, and this is actually a very good article, and I recommend people uh, read it, because uh, she's talking about European Defence Union, of course, uh, and highlighting... Uh, the fact that, uh, once again, highlighting the fact that Boris Johnson and his defence team, his defence uh, 
uh, team will not talk about uh, defence union in any, any way, shape or form. Uh, I think that article deserves to be read and also shared, uh, if possible. Yeah. And just very briefly then, I just wanted to mention this, uh, because moving back to Australia for, exact, uh, for a second, Facebook uh, has issued this blog post, an update about changes to Facebook's services in Australia. Um, and basically what this is about is uh, Facebook is threatening to block publishers and individuals from sharing any kind of news on its platforms at all. Uh, now, this isn't just Facebook uh, uh, playing the censorship card here, because this is really about the massive fight between the social media companies, governments, and also the corporate uh, media, uh, who are very upset that they're not getting a cut of Facebook's ad revenue uh, whenever people share stories on Facebook and whenever Facebook shares stories. Um, so the uh, Australian government is now attempting to push in new rules that would force Google and Facebook uh, to pay publishers when they use the content. Uh, and so Will Easton, who's the managing director of Facebook Australia, has said in this blog post, assuming that the draft code becomes law, we will reluctantly stop allowing publishers and people in Australia from sharing local and international news on Facebook and Instagram. This is not our first choice, it's our last, but it's the only way to protect against an outcome that defies logic and will hurt, not help. And he's making the point that Facebook news feeds sent 2.3 billion clicks to Australian news websites in the past year. So uh, effectively what is happening here is, uh, uh, of course, this has a chilling effect on the sharing of, of data. So that's the government's reason for pushing forward with this. Uh, the corporate media are dying to get part of this ad revenue. So they're supporting the government in this. But Facebook uh, is going to fight them on it and making the point that, of course, uh, it's going to hurt the media companies if they're not getting uh, those clicks. Uh, and it absolutely is. Well, look, if anybody wants to, uh, to, to see how we've got to this point, uh, do have a look at the UK Column uh, website and the censored section. If you scroll down to the, about the middle of the page, you'll find that uh, graphic that says censored on it. Click on there and you'll get a timeline. If you haven't seen that already, uh, it's worth having a look at. Excellent. OK, well, that's it for today. Thank you, Alex, for joining us. I'll just end by saying that uh, uh, over the holiday period for us, we've had quite a few cards that have come, come in thanking us for what we're doing. This one's green, so I've got to keep it on the desk. Uh, but it says freedom is in peril. Defend it with all your might, which I think is pretty appropriate. And uh, I was interested to see this has come from Armed Forces UK Limited. And a very nice message inside saying that uh, we're doing a good job. We hope we are. We do our best. But, of course, we can only do it without the support of our viewers and listeners and supporters. We'll end there. We'll be back at the same time on Friday. Bye-bye.